Aaron Ferguson is going to be preaching uh, from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. And so that's on page 815 of those these uh, black house Bibles. That's page 815. Um, and if you're able, please go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word. This is, once again, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. Hear God's word with me. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is God's word. Aaron, if you could go ahead and come up and I'll pray for you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that in so many ways, independent of us, the glory, the beauty, the planet is undeniable. And I pray that by your power, Aaron, preach faithfully. Please give us ears to listen. All Amen. Thank you, Pastor Darren. Um, Good morning, Cars. To quote um, the words of the late Jerry Orbach from the movie Dirty Dancing, when I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong. Last week I was up here and I boasted about how I knew where almost every NFL player went to college. And I have to admit that I was bested over the week. Uh, I went and got coffee with my new friend, Zach, and uh, he hit me with the name Rashad Wild Goose. And uh, I racked my brain for about a minute, but then I had to admit defeat. And while I had heard the name before, I was unaware that he was a former Wisconsin Badger. So, good job. (laughs) Ah. And something else I can't believe I'm saying is that this is the first Sunday of August. It's already August. And on one hand, that means that the heat is going to break before too long, and my coffee cup is going to have a pumpkin spice latte in it. And on the other hand, students and teachers, cover your ears, means school is right around the corner as well. Uh, That means this next couple weeks is going to be your last chance to get out of town, take a vacation, 
get away to relax by yourself with some friends or your family. And I think there's at least a couple families that I talked to who are doing just that this week. So if that's you and you're watching on the live stream uh, on your, at your beach house condo, um, or if you're driving home listening to the podcast, good morning, or good whenever you're listening to this. Hope you had a good time, and I hope that you have safe travels home. Now, whenever you travel, no matter how many people are in your traveling party, uh, someone has to be kind of the master planner. Someone has to be, you know, the one who knows all the details. And in an ideal world, everyone on the trip would, you know, pitch in a little bit, participate in the planning of the agenda and the packing list and stuff like that. Unfortunately for my wife, Caitlin, we do not live in an ideal world. Usually, we will decide together on a destination, and then she will just take that and run with it. I'm sorry. But it does help that Caitlin is, by disposition, more of a planner, more of a detail-oriented person. Me, I'm more of a big picture, kind of fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. And we'd recently been getting into camping over the last couple of years. We started with just a, a one overnight camping trip over at Finger Lake State Park, just up the road in case anything you know, really went bad. We could just call it quits and come home early. We got a little bit more adventurous. We went to a couple of different parks all around the state of Missouri. Um, side note, don't ever let your mother-in-law give you a tent that you found on Facebook Marketplace for free, <laughs> because there's probably a reason that it was free. But over time, uh, Caitlin has created this extensive packing list for what we need when we go on a camping trip. It's, you know, it's a full page long, but it's like multiple columns, 10-point font. Uh, it is extensive. And so on the day that we leave, you know, I, I just back the car up to the garage, and I kind of Tetris everything into the back of the Subaru, uh, and then we're on our way. We get in the car. Caitlin gets in the passenger seat, she breaks out all the papers, the map of the park, the map of the campsite, the park passes, the info about all the trails that are in the park, and then some things that are outside the park uh, that we can do also. I know it sounds like I'm teasing, but I'm really not. If it wasn't for all the work that she puts in on the front end, there's roughly zero percent chance that I would enjoy camping. Her meticulous planning skill set is definitely the more important one. My fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants skill set really only uh, ever comes into play when your free Facebook Marketplace tent starts filling with water in the middle of the night. Yeah. In our passage this morning, uh, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples that we looked at last week. He shares his own mission with them and lays out these parameters that he wants them to follow. Kind of a, a who, what, when, where, why, and how of his mission. An itinerary. I don't think they had spreadsheets back in the first century, uh, so this is probably the closest that we're going to get to a page-long checklist. If we look closely at our verses today, we'll see that Jesus lays out all the same things that my wife does before our camping trips. Important destination, packing list, travel notes, lodging instructions, and even some important warnings. All of this Jesus provides for his apostles so that he can see his mission made possible. 
You know, before we get into our passage, let's just quickly zoom out for a minute and reorient ourselves to the whole gospel of Matthew because uh, we're moving into a new section of Matthew. Uh, if you look at, if you zoomed all the way out, looked at the whole gospel of Matthew at once, you'd see that it would be subdivided into these five main teaching blocks. You've got stories, you know, chapters eight and nine that we've just gone through the last couple months healing miracles, you know, calming storms, stuff like that. And then it's capped off here with an extended teaching block. One of the, 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 the main themes of Matthew is that Jesus is a new Moses figure, and he's the greater David. That is, he's the true lawgiver, and he's the promised king of God's kingdom. And that's the way he uses, that's the way he communicates that to us, is with those five main teaching blocks. It should remind us a little bit of the five, first five books of the Bible, the Torah, also called the books of Moses. So chapter 10 is going to be our second main teaching block, with the Sermon on the Mount being the first main teaching block. Now, though this is a significant section of teaching, it's not nearly as long as the Sermon on the Mount. It only spans chapter 10. And, but all that is to say that our next several sermons, as we march through this chapter, will have a lot of common themes. Themes of mission, ministry, the kingdom, persecution, and more. So where does Jesus begin? Again, back to the travel plans. Jesus gives his disciples the who, what, when, where, why, and how for this mission. So let's examine each of those things, and then I think... Uh, we'll think about how we are instructed for God's mission today, what we need. So first off, is the who of Jesus' traveling instructions. And really, this also includes the where as well. They go hand in hand. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so let's start with the who in these instructions. Jesus says to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is, the apostles' own Jewish brothers and sisters who have not yet heard or acknowledged the good news that Jesus is bringing God's kingdom. Using these verses, we can also deduce the where of this itinerary, and that would be the, the region of Galilee. How do we know? Well, Galilee is the starting point. That's just our, where the context of Matthew 10 starts out, where Jesus and his apostles are already there. Uh, Galilee is a region in the, the northern part of Palestine that, in Jesus' day, on the north, east, and west, is surrounded by Gentile territory, and then directly to the south, Samaria. So when Jesus tells them, hey, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, what he's saying is, stay in Galilee. Stay in Galilee. Now, that initial instruction, it might bother some of us when we first hear it. Don't go share the gospel with Gentiles and Samaritans. Why are there people we are forbidden to take the gospel to? And why is it based on their ethnic identity? Those are great questions, so let's think about them for a second. First off, we know that this is not a universal for all time part of Jesus' commissioning, uh, but rather a command for the apostles in this moment. 
We know that because Jesus' final commission to his disciples, read about it in Matthew 28, Acts 1, uh, Jesus is going to tell his disciples to make disciples of all nations and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in fact, later on in the gospel of Matthew even, we'll see Jesus himself does ministry among the Gentiles and Samaritans a little bit. But why still uh, not in this passage for the apostles? The other thing in play here uh, is the primacy of the Jewish mission in the gospel narratives. So yes, the, the story of all of Scripture is seeing all nations come under the reign of the Jewish Messiah. We have to keep in mind also that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, specifically. From the early pages of Genesis, God elects a group of people, Israel, through whom he would bless the whole world. It's only right then that God be faithful to his people and his promises to them first. The Gentile mission would come, but only on the other side of the cross and the birth of the church amongst the Jewish Christians. So, the who is the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the where, the region of Galilee, not among the Gentiles or Samaritans. What about the what? What are the disciples actually supposed to do and say as they travel around Galilee? Jesus tells them in verses 7 and 8. He says, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. I was working on my sermon this week. This is like not in my notes, but it's funny. I was working on my sermon this week, and I just had this passage pulled up online all week in my browser. And on Instagram, I started getting ads where like, it was a shirt with this verse just printed on it. I was like, the algorithm knows my sermon passage. This is crazy. Uh, But (laughs) proclaiming and doing kingdom ministry. Here, another reason that Jesus sends his apostles to the Jews first is because the kingdom of God really is a distinctly Jewish idea. It's a distinct idea that comes from the Hebrew Bible what we call the Old Testament. Every person in Galilee who was familiar with their Bible would have instantly known what was being said when the apostles walked into town and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus sends them with the purpose of doing kingdom mission, proclaiming its at-handedness and then demonstrating that proclamation to be, the, to be true by doing the works of the kingdom. We talked a little bit about this last week, I think. Uh, The apostles' message and ministry, it's the same as Jesus' message and ministry. Because when someone is sent out as an apostle, they go as a full representative and with the full authority of the one who sends them insofar as they're operating within their mission. So, we got the who, the what, the where, let's do the, the when and the why quickly. These verses don't give us an exact time frame about when the disciples would go out, but I, I think we can infer that it was immediately and with a sense of urgency. If we look at the end of this block of teaching, Matthew 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 1, it says, 
when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to preach and teach in their cities. So Jesus instructs, sends, and then when he's done, he goes and follows up behind them to check in on how they did. It's following up. Uh, and you know, we'll read different accounts in different gospels of how Jesus sends his apostles, sends his disciples out. They gather back together again and kind of huddle up. You know, how did everything go? What'd you see? What'd you do? You know, they report back to Jesus, and Jesus you know, gives them some further instruction or encouragement. So they go with a sense of urgency, it seems like. Why did the apostles go? What was their motivation? Jesus provides them with that as well at the end of verse 8. He says, you receive without paying, give without pay. The why, the motivation for the apostles' mission is that they had experienced the free and transforming gift of Jesus' grace. When we experience Jesus, we end up being completely transformed by him. Right there at the heart of the mission is that whatever Jesus does in you, he wants to do in others through you. Whatever Jesus does in you, he wants to do in others through you. Lastly, on this mission itinerary, the how. How were Jesus' disciples to carry out this mission? How are they supposed to carry themselves while on mission? Verses 9 through 13. Here's the packing list and the lodging instructions. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your presence come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So here's, here's the how. The apostles were to carry out Jesus' mission unencumbered by the cares of this world, relying on God to bring people across their path who could support them. Again, kind of a strange command for the apostles to follow. The packing list is really short. In fact, it's almost non-existent. One tunic, but not two. One pair of sandals, but not two. And that's it. We don't get to know how long this journey is for the apostles, uh, but the text just doesn't say that. Though it does seem to imply a multi-day journey, they're staying overnight in these cities, multiple cities that they travel between. Why does Jesus have his disciples do this? There's two reasons, at least. First of all, this was just simply a common practice for religious teachers of Jesus' day, whether they were Jewish rabbis or even pagan philosophers. When they sent out their students, they sent them out with very little in order to keep them focused on their mission above all else. Maybe uh, you were like me, and you went on you know, a couple youth group mission trips when you were a teenager. We always had a couple kids in my church growing up that was like this. You, know, you had the fashion girl who had you know, a whole extra bag of just makeup and jewelry, uh, even though it was pretty clearly stated that you're only supposed to bring one bag. Or you had the athletic guy who made sure to bring like a unique pair of shoes and like two basketballs for some reason, uh, you know, just in case, you know, but he would forget to bring deodorant and a toothbrush. <laughs> We'd pack up the vans and our, our youth pastor would be like, 
You know we're going to be doing like Bible camps in 100 degree heat every day, all day long, right? Yeah, but I got to look good doing it. Yeah, but like, what if we get the chance to hoop, you know? No, the trip is about the mission, not whatever side quests we can invent while we're out and about. Second reason for these instructions is, I think probably at the end of the day, this is how Jesus carried himself while he was on mission. Remember when Jesus corrected the over-eager disciple in Matthew chapter 8? He, said, he told him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Disciples live and work like their teacher lives and works. And if the life of a mendicant minister relying on the support of others is good enough for Jesus, then it's perfect for his followers. Jesus himself would later on say in the Gospel of Luke, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Lastly, Jesus gives his apostles a warning to take with them in verses 13 through 15. He says, And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It's pretty intense. If the apostles were unable to find a family or a town that would receive them and their message, it's just time to move on. Time to move on. There's a common practice amongst the most pious Jews in that day uh, that if they traveled to foreign lands amongst the Gentiles or the Samaritans, when they left, they would shake the dust off of their sandals before stepping into the, the temple to worship. They didn't want to risk taking anything profane into the sanctuary that would contaminate it. Now, you're asking. Jesus specifically instructed them not to go to Gentile and Samaritan territory. Why would they be shaking the dust off their sandals? And it's true. If they were obedient to Jesus' commands, they would only be traveling between cities in Galilee. That should tell us something then. To reject the messengers who come representing Jesus with his full authority and with his message of God's coming kingdom, that is tantamount to rejecting Jesus himself. And to be quite frank, rejecting Jesus puts one in the category of an unbelieving Gentile or Samaritan. Jesus says, if this happens, just move on. Move to the next city. These folks have sealed their own judgment. It's like their city is Sodom or Gomorrah. These two uh, infamous cities from the Old Testament who, because of their wickedness, were destroyed by fire and brimstone. So there's the itinerary for Jesus's, or for the apostles' mission. The who, what, when, where, why, and how. And that leaves us to answer the question, what does this show us? What does this teach us about living out Jesus' mission today in our lives? As we examine this passage, I think it reveals to us three needs that we have. Three needs for meaningful mission. You ready to write these down? Here's our three needs. 
We need, number one, kingdom clarity. Number two, we need to trust in God's provision. And number three, we need to live to bless our neighborhood. Did you get those? If not, that's okay. Uh, We'll put them all up on the screen one at a time as we unpack them a bit. These will be important for us to remember because God's mission, it can be overwhelming. And we don't always know where to begin or sometimes even what we need. But first, we need kingdom clarity. What does it mean to proclaim the kingdom? For its first years, uh, it was an announcement of fulfilled hope, the triumph of deliverance, a call to repentance, and so much more. For the Jewish people living under the Roman Empire, the kingdom of God meant the expulsion of Rome and freedom from oppression, taxation, and abuse. It meant that God would be living and ruling amongst his people in a way that brought justice and flourishing to all, including the other nations of the world, and especially those on the margins or who are neglected by society. It meant that all the promises of Scripture were finally being fulfilled, and it meant that God would purify his people, making them able to enjoy his presence fully. But why would that original audience, why would those original hearers around Galilee actually believe the apostles when they preached? Messianic movements, they were not uncommon in Jesus' day. Every several years, you know, before and after Jesus was around on earth, um, different people would pop up claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus had to send his apostles not just with a kingdom message, but also with a kingdom ministry. What does the kingdom of God look like in a day-to-day, lived-out reality? I love this. One of my seminary professors used to say this. Uh, in Jesus' preaching, he likes to take the book of Isaiah and like stick it in a blender. And when he preaches, he combines all the images of the day of the Lord, what it would be like when the Messiah came and established God's rule. And you know what that scroll smoothie often came out looking like? The restoration of the human person, judgment on rebellious evil spirits, and resurrection from the dead. In other words, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. Jesus commissions his disciples, don't just tell people about the kingdom, show them the kingdom. What does that kingdom clarity look like, uh, look, for, look like for us today? Excuse me. Like I've said a couple times recently, God has never used me to cast out a demon or raise someone from the dead. It would be cool if he did. Uh, but so far, it has not been a part of his plan to use me in that way. Uh, I'm sure most of you are in the same boat as me. So if we're not healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, casting out demons. What does it look like to show people the kingdom? There are plenty of other ways that we can display, that that God's word shows us that we can display the life of the kingdom. And they all start here in the church. We might hear a lot of talk about the need for Christians to be countercultural in our world today. And there's some truth to that. There's a little bit of truth to that. Uh, needs to be countercultural. Um, but I've been toying with 
something new recently. I've been noodling on, on, on an idea I want to share with you guys. And that is, instead of a church being countercultural, that is, set against the culture, I think we've actually been made to be a supra-culture. What does that even mean? What do I mean by that? That prefix, supra, it has the meaning of above or beyond. Ab- above or over, it means outside of or beyond the limits of. Because God made humans in his image and gave us the task of co-creation in this world, we see all kinds of amazing and beautiful things that humanity has built. The sum of those things being you know, the culture at large. And at the same time, because humanity has been affected by sin and the fall, we see that human cultures are able to produce the same magnitude of evil and curse as we are blessing. At the same time, cultural systems like free markets have helped eliminate massive swaths of global abject poverty in the last century, and yet we still see increasing levels of consumerism, selfishness, and debt slavery. There are more democratic and free societies around the globe, but somehow that has not eliminated oppression and coercion in human societies. And there are places where it's as bad as it's ever been. But in the church, by the power of Jesus' Holy Spirit living in our hearts, we have the opportunity to show the world what God's kingdom looks like as a supra-culture. That is, a culture that is above and beyond what the rest of the world is able to create. Where we can continue to build on the good that each culture produces, yet redeem or restore what evil has done. Remember when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount? Those teachings of Jesus aren't just a list of laws to be legislated. They're a basis of a new covenant that transforms our hearts and then transforms our community first. A counterculture is merely going to decry the division or the hatefulness that it sees around it. But a supraculture is going to see brothers and sisters make amends with one another and find genuine unity once more. A counterculture, it's going to merely condemn the evils of pornography. But a supraculture is going to see brothers and sisters live in close community without objectifying one another and also living out sexual holiness. A counterculture is simply going to shine a light on how, uh, how people on the margins of society are devalued or oppressed. But a supraculture sees People actually, uh, actually sees to it that the poor and the hungry and the thirsty and the pure in heart are cherished and blessed. Chorus, kingdom clarity informs our mission and creates a supra-cultural home base for us to call people home to. It makes us not a band of culture warriors, but a culture of warmth and welcomers. In addition to kingdom clarity, we also need to trust in God's provision. Remember the packing list that Jesus gave his disciples? Jesus sends the disciples with next to nothing. Now, Jesus doesn't include those instructions again in you know, the Great Commission or in Acts chapter 1. Um, so I think 
for us, we, we are allowed to take you know, more than just the clothes on our backs when we go out and live missionally. But maybe we need to give pause to this commissioning as well. Maybe we should pause and consider what we really need to live on mission. I love what Pastor Darren said a few weeks ago in his sermon. He said, you know, where do we turn when problems pop up for us in God's mission? We turn to theological talking heads. Read this book. Listen to this podcast. Toss out all the caps on all the markers because we're going to be strategizing in front of this whiteboard for hours. And we love to act like the fulfillment of God's mission is all on us, don't we? Just listen to the contradiction in that very statement. We act like it's on us to fulfill God's mission. We can't fulfill God's mission. We can barely fulfill our own homework assignments or the list of chores that we have around our house. That's all right. Because we're not called to fulfill God's mission. God will fulfill his own mission. We are called, commanded, invited even, to participate with willing obedience in God's mission as he fulfills it through us. We're invited to participate with willing obedience in God's mission as he fulfills it through us. And yeah, sometimes God will use a big church with a bunch of people in a big auditorium to fulfill his mission. Sometimes God will use a smaller church with a bunch of small groups around the city to fulfill part of his mission. And God is going to use you know, Bible scholars and translators and you know, really awesome preachers to accomplish part of his mission. And most of the time, God is going to use you with nothing but the shirt on your back, a Bible in your hand, and a prayerful heart to fulfill the part of his mission that includes your coworker, your neighbor, your family member. And church, that is more than enough provision for what we need. Lastly, the third thing that we need to meaningfully carry out God's mission is that we need to live to bless. I realize that's not quite something, yet, something we need to receive, but that's something that we need to do. We need to live to bless our neighborhood and our city. This is really closely related with having kingdom clarity, but it's more oriented towards outside of our church walls. Look again at, at the passage, specifically verse 13. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. This is easy to miss, but it's important. You may be familiar with the traditional Jewish greeting, shalom, maybe if you have some Jewish friends. But what, is it, what does that word mean? Quite literally, it means peace, wholeness, flourishing. I like to say that shalom means the way things ought to be. But Jesus isn't just expecting his apostles to go around, you know, poking their heads in people's windows and, you know, shalom. In the same way that we greet each other with a, hey, what's up? Or how's it going? And then just keep on moving. Jesus is expecting them to go out and really, truly spread shalom, peace, through the towns that they visit. When the apostles visit a town, they go proclaiming the kingdom's nearness and performing the kingdom's new reality. What else is that but working out in the lives of real people peace, wholeness, and human flourishing? 
Church, when we live on mission, we're not just talking, we're doing. And we're not doing less than talking, that's for sure. But we're living to bless our neighborhood and our city. The gospel is good news as it pertains to people's eternal destinies? Yeah. And as it pertains to people's temporal realities? Our church, this body, this supraculture we're embodying should be a living day-to-day blessing to those closest to us. God forbid this should ever happen, but if overnight the people of Karish Church cease to gather at 606 Ridgeway Avenue, I would hope that the people who live up and down these streets would miss us. Dare I say, mourn our absence. Even if they never stepped foot in this auditorium and thought that we were totally insane for orienting our lives around a poor Middle Eastern Jewish teacher who we believe to be God in the flesh who rose from the dead. The lives of every person between Providence and West, between Broadway and Business Loop, ought to be better because God and his providence graced us with this specific address to gather at each week. That's all to say that we need to be living to bless our community. If our mission is to be meaningful, that's the kind of impact Jesus has on our hearts and then out in the world. What's the overarching purpose of all this, Karis? Why did Jesus send these 12 apostles out 2,000 years ago? And why have they been making disciples who make disciples who make disciples for the last 2,000 years? Why are God's people compelled to continue doing it today? It's because our God himself is a missional God. The God of the entire universe has his own mission, and it's this that he would have a family of sons and daughters from all over the world to share in the love that he himself has always experienced as the Father with the Son in the Holy Spirit. But God couldn't possibly be united to imperfect, sinful humanity, could he? No. Not unless something profoundly miraculous happened. Not unless God himself became a human like us. And even though he was perfect, because he was still God, volunteered to take the punishment of death that we had earned for ourselves. That's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus did. But that's not all, because that couldn't be all. If Jesus just died, then our sin would have been dealt with, but he still would have been dead, and we still would have been doomed to experience the natural death of living in a fallen world. Jesus had to do more. Like we read this morning as we were singing, and Bobby told us, Jesus had to do more. He had to become alive again and defeat death once and for all. So church, that's what he did. But again, if he had just left things at that, we would have been alive, but we would have been all on our own, and that's not good. So Jesus sent his very own spirit to live in the hearts of his followers, transforming their lives and uniting them to him forever. Mission accomplished. That's what Jesus sent his disciples to proclaim, that Jesus would soon be fulfilling God's mission in himself through his life and death and resurrection.
And that's our mission too. So let's go. Will you pray with me? Father, we honor you and we praise you this morning. You're a good and great and holy God. And you made it your mission to come and rescue us when we could not do that ourselves. God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Would these verses sink deep into our heart and would your spirit use them to transform our lives? Make us a missional people like you, our missional God. Lord, as we continue to worship this morning, grant us unity around your table. Please give us a, a deeper sense of unity with you and with our brothers and sisters by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.